Want to exhibit your work? Benson First Friday doesn't exist without artists. BFF will help you get in contact with neighborhood businesses and spaces and guide you through any other help you need. Start the conversation with Benson First Friday at BensonFirstFriday.com. BFF is dedicated to supporting the region's emerging and established artists by creating opportunities, exposure, and experiences that help them move forward while enriching the cultural competency of the greater Omaha area. BFF to the arts, BFF to the community, Benson First Friday. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today we have a very special guest on the show. I know I say that every day. The thing is, they all are special. They all are doing fascinating things. Obviously, the whole reason why we do this show is to bring exposure to the fascinating people in Nebraska, in the Midwest in general. But sometimes the person has a little bit bigger exposure than others, and the one today certainly does. Today I'm talking with Kara Eastman, congressional candidate, who will be running against Don Bacon. So she wants to represent you if you live in Nebraska. That's a big deal. That's a big sort of personality to have on the show. And we've had some degree of political guests in the past. We haven't had someone at the federal level before. That's a first for the show today. I hope it's something we can continue. One of the whole goals of doing this show is to make it so it's not crazy to have conversations with your representatives. Ben and I believe firmly that it's important that you know what your representatives or your potential representatives think. You know what they are like as humans. Whether you agree with them or not, hopefully you do not see them as just demons with pitchforks running around. So I'm hopeful that this is something that you may or may not agree with what Kari Eastman wants to do, but I hope you'll at least listen to her and treat her as a human being and think about, okay, how did she get here? Why does she think the things she thinks? How can we move away from these stilted, dumb debates that we have with our politicians where it's just like, timer, say something, timer, say something, timer, say something. Nobody gets to respond. Nobody gets to treat each other like humans. How can we actually treat each other like humans, I guess, is the overall goal. And that's been the goal every time we've done a Riverside Chats. Today's no different. And today we are talking about that same thing with human Kara Eastman. So please enjoy the show. Please subscribe on iTunes if you appreciate what we're doing here. It really helps us. Please give us a review, anything you can do. And in the meantime, enjoy my conversation with Kara Eastman. Uh, well, when you were growing up, were you 
were you interested in politics? Was it like a political home to start with, or did, did it awaken at some point? No, not at all. Uh, I, my, you know, growing up it was just me and my mom. I don't remember ever hearing about politics. I don't remember it ever like anything political being on the TV. Um, we talked a lot about our own situation, our family, and my mom talked a lot about her family growing up. She grew up in a big family, and so because it was just the two of us, so it was a little bit weird for her. But um, no, I, I, I did not grow up with politics. I did not even grow up um, in a place where, it's funny because when I, you know, while I grew up alone with my mom, I did have a dad, and uh, somebody recently commented on social media, they were like, oh, if you have a single mom, you can't have a dad. Um, he just wasn't around that much, but I remember telling him that I wanted to help people, that that was what was my career was going to be, and he said, why would you do that? You should go to Hollywood and be an actress. That's really weird, too. So, um, so no, I, I uh, took it upon myself when I was 10. I told my mom that I wanted to go into helping people. Uh, when I was 15, I told my best friend that I was going to buy a van and drive around and give homeless people stuff, and she told me that was stupid because I'd never make any money, and uh, I've been doing social work my whole career, and uh, eventually made a pretty decent living at it, and uh, so it's, it's, getting into politics was not, definitely not the path that I thought I would take, it's actually um, my husband, who was part of the impetus for me to get into it, because he lives in British politics as a historian, uh, he knows a lot about it, and so I rely heavily on him for input and information, but, uh, but now I would say I pretty much live in great politics. <laughs> well, where, where do you think that impulse came from to just always want to give and help people? Was there a moment or something where you had some epiphany about it? Well, I think, you know, I, my mom uh, and I were, were relatively poor, and I don't know that I knew that at the time, but, um, and, but so my mom struggled a lot. We, we lived in places where people struggled. Um, I grew up you know, with her family, they also grew up in poverty. And so for me, it was, um, it was always about uh, finding ways to level the playing field and make sure that, um, there, you know, I was always kind of disturbed by this idea of all these people having money while people, you know, just necessarily struggled. And so I think it was just something that was ingrained for me probably through my family, but without them actually knowing it. And so, did you do acting as well? Is that why your dad wanted you to Hollywood? <laughs> I did a little bit of acting. I was in our dance company. Um, yeah, I think that was just in his mind, like, it was going to be his meal ticket, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so, like, when you're growing up, you, I mean, you have the idea you're going to go give people, you know, homeless people things. And so, at some point, though, it's like, when you're in high school, were you thinking about specific jobs or careers? And, was there a point where you're like, well, what if I just, what if I do go to Hollywood, make a lot of money, and then give some of the money to people? Or how did you sort of navigate those ideas? No, I never wanted to. It's funny because uh, it, it was never like an, an objective of mine to make money. It was always an objective of mine that whatever I did at the end of the day was going to help people in some way. So my thought in high school was I was going to go in you know, to psychology or, or sociology. I studied sociology in college. I was just having a conversation with a fellow social worker that a social worker came to our college once and was talking about her work. And, and the way that she framed it around um, that you could have a direct impact on people's lives, meeting them where they were, um, depending on their situation, that it wasn't about looking at a group of people, but rather individuals and learning from their life experiences and being able to help them with those needs immediately then and there. That was something that really appealed to me. And so um, that, that is why I went into social work. And, uh, and that's really what I've been doing for my entire career was finding ways to meet people where they're at. And I think that, that's such an important um, thing for us to be thinking about right now, is when, when you look at the way that policies are designed, we're not always thinking about people where they're at. We're thinking about where we think they should be, or um, some sort of idealized notion, or in the case of the current administration, we're not really thinking about people at all, but rather corporations. Um, and so, so to me, I think we need more social workers in office because of our training and our background and really understanding the way that 
um, communities come together, the way that, that people come together, and the needs of individuals based on their traditions, based on their cultures, um, based on their languages, their backgrounds, and, and how important it is to understand where people are coming from and to be a much better listener than talker. To, to develop that kind of cohesive worldview, though, I mean, so like when you're in college, you take that sociology class, was that like a mind-blowing experience to you to some extent? Or was that, were you already sort of forming these ideas? I, I had so many classes. So I went to college outside of Los Angeles, and I had so many classes. Um, you know, I, I took classes from people who led the Chicano Studies movement, or you know, Chicano Awareness Movement in LA. I took classes from uh, women who were leaders in the African American poetry movement. Like I had these like incredible experiences in college where I was given this information and it was always tied to activism that had occurred in that community. And so that was really exciting to me. And, and something that eventually, once I started working in social work, you know, I always thought about those experiences that people had taught me about that, what they had learned and how to make yourself, um, make your positions and your, uh, your feelings known, but while also being a little bit behind the scenes. Um, and that's really, um, and actually I found that to be a bit of a problem in the last you know, campaign was like, getting the word out about who I was and the work that I had been doing in the community, so much of it was behind the scenes in Omaha Healthy Kids Alliance. We were working, we've been working in housing in North and South Omaha for 13 years, but people didn't necessarily know it because I wasn't the one, I wasn't putting pictures of myself on these houses, um, or I wasn't the one, <laughs> like, or I wasn't the one necessarily doing the work, my team was, and so I was always lifting them up and making sure people understood that they were the ones to get the credit for this work, and that really it's these communities that should because that's how we empower people. So, um, yeah. So, so you just like you had direct experience with how activism can change things and how people can change things, and so I'm sure that developed. There were some seeds in there, and so it's like you're starting to think, okay, here's maybe what I can do. And so you start. I mean, was the Healthy Kids Alliance? Was that you? What's the story of that? How did that all come about? Well, so. Omaha Healthy Kids had been formed prior to my moving to Omaha. Uh, they grew out of the Superfund site here. So Omaha is still the largest residential Superfund site in the nation because of lead contamination. And the group was formed to create and develop a comprehensive response to lead poisoning. So we knew that there um, was lead in our environment as a result of the lead refinery that used to be down by the river. But also, at the same time, we have 84,000 homes built before 1978, and your lead-based paint was banned. We have too many, at that time, way too many kids that were getting exposed to enough levels of lead that it was impacting them. And we see this, actually, there's a, there's a researcher at Creighton now that's doing some study on the impact that that's had on kids who grew up in East Omaha, and it's pretty significant. Um, so we, we also have 17,000 lead service lines, the line uh, from the streets that carry water into our home. So lead poisoning is a huge issue in our community. It is in a lot of urban areas. And so the idea was solve that problem. Um, not so necessarily so easy to solve, although I would argue that it's the reason that we haven't solved it, because it is absolutely, lead poisoning is 100% preventable. And the reason that we haven't solved it is we haven't had the political will to do it. We have the money, we have the resources, we know the solutions, but we, have, we don't have policymakers that are willing to invest and we, see, we saw that in Flint, right? Yeah. Um, and so we, we, we need policymakers who understand that this issue is so important that if we actually take lead out of the environment, we address a number of other issues inside homes, we make them more energy efficient, we lower utility bills, we increase the tax base for communities, and we create healthier communities. And, and I think most importantly, we have kids who aren't poisoned from being babies and then you know, told grow up and then graduate. Um, it also impacts crime later in life. So there's all these things that have this ripple effect uh, because of lead contamination, and we need policymakers who are willing to, you know, honestly put their jobs on the line and go out and fight for this because it's not the sexiest thing around. It's not the sexiest topic, but it needs to be addressed. Isn't it ridiculous though that like not poisoning kids is not a sexy enough topic to run on? I mean, <laughs> you know, I just put out on Twitter today that. I am having a hard time watching the GOP become the anti-children party. And that's what seems to be happening. We're talking about taking away health.
healthcare. We're talking about defunding the Special Olympics. I mean, what was happening? Um, I mean, we've had governors in the state who've been anti-kids for a long time, but now we're seeing it play out on a national level. I don't understand it. Well, but you are the kind of person who seems like when you see a problem, you try to know enough about that problem to understand even theoretically what could fix it. So, like, how do you get to the point where you can see a problem and then how do you even learn what you need to do to fix it or what somebody needs to do to fix it? Because a lot of people, I think, when they see some big problem, they think, oh, that's terrible, that shouldn't be the case, but then they don't know what to do beyond that. So how did you get to the point where you're the sort of person who does something about it or even knows what to do? Well, I think that's part of how I'm hardwired. It's also part of my training as a social worker. And, and I also think that that's one of the reasons why I um, am excited to continue running for this position. There are very simple solutions in front of us to some of the complex problems that we have in our country. And I'm, I'm somebody that likes data, and so I want to see the data. I want to see the cost savings from that. And so many of the policy positions that I have taken and continue to take save the federal government money. So I have always been looking for fiscally responsible solutions to our community's biggest problems, and I believe we need to be doing that on a federal level too because we're drowning in debt and we're going to pass that off to our kids. So we need to have solutions that actually save money. And when you look at some of the things that are um, being talked about on a national level right now, uh, we know that having people have a livable wage actually ultimately saves the federal government money. We know that some kind of Medicare for All universal health care program actually saves the federal government money. And we have to start dispelling these notions that, oh, we're, you know, it's government control or it's too much money. We're already spending too much money. We have to have solutions that save the federal government money and are actually morally responsible where we're protecting the United States. People who live in the United States, and that should be the first role of government is to take care of us on some level. I mean, that's, that seems like a message that certainly people in Nebraska, if you are sort of like geared more conservative, it comes up all the time, fiscally responsible. It's like there's this idea that Democrats are never fiscally responsible, right? And so, I mean, are you seeing a push? Is that something that you just personally are going for? Is it a general push to try to actually emphasize the fiscal elements of a lot of the policies? Because it's not necessarily, I think, that they all were so irresponsible before, but maybe that wasn't the emphasis, and maybe that's changing. I mean, what do you think? Well, I think that that's the, that's the way it's being positioned by Republicans right now, is that uh, you know, Democrats want big government and big this and all, you know, and, and they keep using the S word, right? Socialists. Um, and, and the reality is, we have a lot of social pro programs right now. I mean, public education, we have roads, we have fire departments. Um, and, and a lot of those work really well. And so we need to take those, the models of what work, and we need to fix inefficiencies where they exist, knowing that it's not just that there are government solutions to everything, but there are efficient, effective government solutions to things. And that's something that I've been fighting for in my 13 years in Nebraska. How did you start to develop a political philosophy of what the government should or shouldn't do? Um, most, like, most, most of it comes from seeing people in their communities and, and knowing what works and what doesn't. So, so we don't want healthy kids. We worked very closely with the EPA around the Superfund program, and I can tell you what the EPA has done really well and where they have completely failed. And so I'm not somebody that just thinks that all government programs are perfect. Um, I actually have you know, been pushing on the EPA to do things better for a long time here. Um, and so I think it's just a matter of experience and, and seeing what works and what doesn't and going out and talking to people and seeing, you know, when, you know, again, we were just having this conversation about how much somebody's paying in healthcare when you're paying $600 a month and you have a $5,000 deductible and your co-pays, I mean, all these things add up. And if we look at the average, you know, family paying $10,000 a year for healthcare, but there's a more effective, affordable solution, affordable for the government, um, why would we explore that? So I mean, would you say to some extent it's using what you learned from your social work then and just applying those same ideas as far as like, you can't, obviously in social work you have to think about the money, you have to think about where it's coming from, how you're spending it. So does a lot of that apply to policy or things the government could be doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, coming from running nonprofits, I mean, we have to be very good stewards of our donations. 
we have to be very fiscally responsible, and we have to know where to invest and where we have to um, find outside resources. And at Omaha with the Kids, we always require some sort of skin in the game from our clients because we knew that was the best way to achieve our goals. That if they were bought in um, financially in some way, that was either through sweat equity or through some sort of financial contribution, especially on the landlord side, they were getting so much more out of it and that they were more invested. And I think that's the same way that our government programs should work. But they shouldn't, it, it shouldn't be that you go bankrupt because you, you have some sort of health issue. Um, or, you know, right now what I'm seeing is, you know, I have, I have friends who were paying, you know, over $1,000 because their tires have gone out so much driving around this crazy streets that we have right now. How many people have that much money laying around that they can just afford to pay these things? Like, we have to find ways to make sure that we are not having people um, who are normally pretty financially solvent, but one incident happens, one financial disaster, one medical emergency, and then suddenly they're living in poverty. That affects all of us. And so, I mean, you're able to apply that. What was the moment when you first thought, maybe I know enough to at least do better than some of the people currently in office? Because <laughs> surely that's part of the equation. Um, that's such a good question. Uh, Honestly, I mean, I, I have to credit the United States president for this one. Um, people would ask me prior to my decision to run for Congress, have you ever thought of running for higher office? And I'd say, I don't think people like me get elected. Like, I've been standing up for people living in poverty, people of color, like, you know, really working on racial, social, environmental justice my whole career. I speak my mind. I don't have a background in public policy like my husband. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't watch MSNBC all the time. Like it wasn't, you know, who I was. And then, you know, in 2016, Donald Trump gets elected. It's like, well, hey, I guess anybody can be a part of that. When you said there, was, like, I think kind of sad. You're like, well, I've spent. I don't think people like to get elected. I only spend my life helping people, trying to make things better for poor people. Like that, that doesn't work, that doesn't go well. Right. So, I mean, what was it that made you think, okay, so like the federal level versus the state level, was it just the timing worked out that way? Or? No, it was, it's really about passion. And for me, the things that if I'm, gonna, if I'm gonna put myself and my family and my friends through this insanity of running for, for the federal office, um, I have to do it with something that I'm passionate about. And I would like to spend uh, the next decade working on healthcare. That's my priority. Crashing the my mic makes it terrible. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so was there a day, a specific moment when you realized, like, okay, I gotta pull the trigger on this, this is what I wanna do, uh, I'm committed to it? Uh, to run. This next cycle or the first cycle? The first cycle. <laughs> the first cycle. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get to the next cycle. Um, there were a couple of, of small events of conversations I had with people watching Obama's speech at the Democratic Convention in 2016. Oh, we miss him so. Um, <laughs> uh, having yeah, having conversations with Crystal Rose from the Douglas County Democrats, or um, honestly, a conversation that I had with Brad Ashford where he told me he wasn't going to be running again. Um, so it was Can like. You tell that story? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was he was one of the first people that that I talked to and. Uh, you know, said, you know, I considered that seat to have been his. I didn't actually know that he had lost until the the morning after the election because I was, you know, still drowning in tears and trying to cheer my daughter up a little bit. Um, and and somebody texted me and said, you should think about running for Congress. And I was like, Congress? Oh God, Brad Ashford lost too. I couldn't believe it. So um, I met with him a couple months later and uh, we had coffee and. He told me he probably wasn't going to run, that he'd always really liked me, and that he could help me, and that obviously he changed his mind, which he has the right to do. But um, yeah, I think it was just a number of conversations like that, going out talking to people, friends of mine, elected officials, former elected officials, Ben Gray, Brenda Council, Mike Boyle, Ann Boyle, um, just people that I trusted, and, uh, and eventually it just made sense. So like, when you meet with Astrid, though, is it sort of like, you're trying to just get permission from him to run at a certain at a certain level. I don't know that it was permission. I think it was um, input. Like, you know, what would this 
what would this look like? One, I wanted to find out if he was running. And, um, and so that was honestly the, the, the reason that I wanted to meet with him. But once he said he wasn't, um, then it was just kind of fun to chat. And he was showing me texts from Nancy Pelosi, and I thought that was cool. <laughs> well, and so obviously then that turned into something a little bit different. Right. Uh, were there any key takeaways sort of that you gained from the experience of the primary then? What was that like? Well, honestly, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I think primaries are great. I mean, I, I think it's such a great way to give voters an option, especially in Nebraska. I mean, we, we, we've had a hard time recruiting people to run for Congress for the last few, you know, for the last decade. I mean, it's been challenging. Uh, we still have, you know, key positions in the Nebraska um, government that have gone uncontested. We need more people to be running. So I welcome the primary. I thought it was great for me. It obviously gave me a ton of momentum going into the general election, and I think that's true this time too. And and I think we need to really think about um, how we as Democrats uh, interact in a primary situation. It makes it uncomfortable, I think, sometimes for people, but I think it's a really healthy process, and it's a great way to get ideas out there and to give voters a choice. Right, well, so the choice then becomes you had to sort of position yourself to be notably different from Ashford, right? And so what were the key differences that you thought, okay, here I can bring something different to the table? Well, I think part of it was just, um, you know, I mean, we, we come from different backgrounds. I mean, he's a, he's, his background, he'd spent a lot, you know, he's a lawyer, he'd spent a lot of time, um, you know, legislating. Like, that is, that I believe that is his passion. And I just have a different background. Mm -hmm. um, we do have differences of opinion, we did, about policy solutions. And so I think we, we did a good job of laying those out for people online and making decisions. And do you see yourself as part of like a different wing in the Democratic Party then, or potential Democratic, uh, Democratically elected representatives, as opposed to someone like Ashford, who maybe has more of a, an older, uh, not necessarily like an old-fashioned style, but it's like maybe the, the tide is a little bit different or there's just different sorts of movements within the Democratic Party. Would you identify yourself as someone who is part of like a newer one? Because like you hear progressive thrown around as different from liberal, and I don't know that the distinction is entirely clear to me. Do you, do you care to comment on where you fall in any of the spectrums there? Yeah, I mean, I think that for me personally, I, I see this like tiny spectrum of Democrats and where we fall right now. And but I think the values are pretty much the same, that we we care about people, we care about putting people above moneyed interests and above corporations and care about making sure that there's a level playing field, knowing that what's happening right now on the Republican side is they are putting the very, very wealthy over everybody else. And so that top you know one percent has all the benefits and the rest of us just continue to get screwed. And so to me that's where like from a value system, I think that's where we call as Democrats. Now, uh, I mean when it, it's a challenging situation to be in where you're kind of pitted against each other as Democrats, if you're a corporate Democrat, progressive Democrat, a liberal Democrat, I mean all these kind of things. But like I mean for me it's really just about um, speaking up for people coming from a value position that I stand for. That's why I don't take corporate PAC money. I do not believe that corporations need politicians to be in their pockets. I mean, we, it's time to change that paradigm. Yeah. And that's worth an applause right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and we have to think about why we do that. I mean, it's kind of, it's, in some ways it's like, oh, it's, it's how things have just been done. Well, I think what's amazing right now is you've got a new crop, maybe, of Democrats that are, that are looking at these issues and saying, just because we have always done things this way doesn't mean it's working for everybody, doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And so I was really proud to take that stance. That was a relatively new approach, right? Not taking corporate PAC money. Now it seems kind of old and boring, and I gotta think of something new. But, um, oh, that's <laughs> boring, but it's old. But I mean, but it's, but it's interesting because we, you know, as candidates, like we put it out there and say it, but think about what that really means because it has been the tradition that you take corporate money. Um, and then when we look at how much uh, the fossil fuel industry spends on supporting candidates, and then you're like, oh, it's shocking that candidates are saying, oh, we can't really significantly, you know, influence and, and impact climate change right now. It's like, well, yeah, because you're, you're, you know, the oil industry is supporting you quite a bit. So, um, so I think that that kind of stuff makes sense. 
when we talk about um, you know really putting people above uh, above corporations and we think about healthcare right now this this idea that we would um, you know dismantle or change the insurance industry like scares people for some reason and and I think actually Senator Sanders has been amazing on this issue where he's just said you know for in his perspective yeah just get rid of the insurance companies like why are we so afraid of that idea but we're totally okay with people just absolutely drowning in medical debt or paying paying outrageous costs in prescriptions like why have we decided that it's okay to pay twenty five hundred dollars for a pill or however much people are paying in prescriptions? I mean, it's crazy. And so I really think we need to look at. Um, I, I'm excited to see all these ideas coming out of the Democratic Party. And what's fascinating to me right now is a lot of the ideas um, that we were talking about in the last uh, election, the last campaign, that were so radical, right? Medicare for all, a livable wage fighting climate change. I mean, these ideas are now pretty mainstream. You have almost every Democrat that's running for president is talking about these issues. And uh, and so I think it's great that we're, you know, within five months we've been able to kind of make these ideas and, you know, more mainstream, but also the thing about them is that they're widely supported by the vast majority of Americans. Yeah. And so the fact that we're not taking that into consideration as much seems a little crazy to me. Like, I think it's time to start listening to people. Well, and so you do the, you know, when you run the first time, one of the problems I thought was really annoying was, you know, there seems like there's not a good way for candidates to actually talk about policy or even ideological disagreements. Like, I remember even watching the debates with Bacon, and it's like, the structure seems very stilted to me, where it's like, it seems like it'd be better if you guys could actually just have a conversation in front of people, and you could even disagree, as opposed to, we treat it like a sport. Where it's like, okay, here's your time. Okay, now it's his time. Now it's their time. And it's like, I don't, I don't. It's like I feel like this is a waste of everyone's time, including the candidates, at a certain point, because I'm not learning much other than you know that you have enough time probably just to give sound bites on both sides, and that's it. And so, I mean, is there anything? Do you think there's any changes that can be made about the way that these actual elections happen to try to move a conversation toward content as opposed to sort of just like cheerleading for one side or the other, which seems like everyone gets pushed to? Yes. <laughs> Uh, I think we need publicly financed elections. I think that we need elections to last, for, for campaigns to last for about maybe six weeks. Um, because, I mean, I will have been running for Congress for about four years when this is said and done. Uh, it's a long time. Uh, if you're not sick of me, I'm certainly all sick of me some days. Um, <laughs> we feel that way when we're running for office or not, though. <laughs> Um, and, and I think we need to we need to have more debates, actual debates, not the you have a minute go, um, give your sound bite, and uh, I mean have actual healthy debates about significant issues that people care about. Allow the public to participate in that, in that, and open the airwaves so that we're having these debates so people can see them on TV, put them on social media, put them online, and and stop this like year and a half of you know television ads and mail and all the stuff that we're just spending so much money on. I mean these the presidential primary, I mean it's out, it's outrageous how much this is gonna end up costing people and uh, it's and, and then as a candidate the amount of time that you spend raising money instead of studying, talking to people, researching, I mean that to me is where we should be spending our time not on calling people and asking them for their hard money. Yeah. And so, I mean, as far as that election, were you ever in contact with Don Bacon outside of those sort of awkward debates? Or I mean, was there any communication that goes on? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> in, the, in the primary, we ran into each other a couple of times, and uh, he was actually at the Blue Line, which is my coffee shop, and I told him that was my coffee shop. And <laughs> But uh, no, not, not too much. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there would be that possibility. I don't know. Do you, do you think that would make a difference to some extent in the way some of these campaigns are run and people actually knew each other as humans a little bit as opposed to just, I mean, I'm not saying that's even exclusive to this, but it seems like a lot of times it's just like you've got your boogeyman on one side or your boogeyman on the other side. It's people, the way people act and 
I don't know that a lot of times candidates really do meet the person they're even up against or talk to them or even get a chance to know them. Well, I think that the, the problem is not necessarily the candidates. And if you watched the last election, Bacon and I, I think, were pretty civil to each other. Um, and, and that's just partly who I am as a person. Maybe it's who he is, too. But the issue comes from outside groups. And so you know, he would, it was easy for him to absolve himself from the outside attacks. Um, maybe he could just say, well, there's other groups that are doing that. And I think that that's a big problem in politics right now, too. Is, you know, you had uh, about $1.2 million of the Republicans spent attacking me. Um, and which, if you think about it, it's, out, it's amazing that I did as well as I did because the Democrats spent about 37000 attacking him. So there's a huge discrepancy in the amount of money that went into that. On some level, we were happy about that, but unfortunately, it moves election points a little bit. But that's the problem. Like, we've come to accept this in American politics as just status quo, and it needs to change. It's a stupid waste of money. Like we need to be able to just give people the right information, let people get to know candidates, and make their decision. Well, yeah, that, that's something like this. Something like this is almost existing because I don't see that happen in a lot of the elections where we actually even get a conversation with the candidates running. It's all just sound bites and what seems to test well. It seems like the only thing that a lot of people have access to. And so, incidentally, I did invite Don Bacon on the show, too. I haven't heard back, so I don't know. It was a few months ago. I don't know. Um, but so, as far as, you know, we get to this election, so, I mean, we're, you're trying to come up with something where it's like, you're already at a disadvantage running as a Democrat in Nebraska, it seems like. Would you agree with that to start with? Is it? I mean, because, like, I, I can make jokes about it, but you know more than I do. I don't know. I mean, look at the last election. A few seats in the state legislature, we can control most of the local boards, county boards, city council. Um, there's some there's some amazing stuff happening in the Democratic Party here in Nebraska right now, at least in Douglas County. Well, is, is the infrastructure just smaller though? I mean, I assume than like what the Republican Party is in Nebraska. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why we announced early. And, and actually, we are we have been focused on fundraising this last couple of months because we want to show that in Nebraska, Democrats can raise money the same way that Republicans can. And we know that Bacon's already starting to raise money, so we want to show that we know how to do that too. I had over 90,000 donors to my campaign last time. It's a remarkable number of people that were invested in this race and invested in me as a candidate, and I'm so proud of that. And now I'm going back to each and every one of you asking for more. <laughs> I mean, do you think this, I mean, Nebraska is thought of as a red state, so whether we're saying you're at a disadvantage or not, I don't know. But like, is it that people, I mean, do you get the sense that people actually do much in terms of like educating themselves about candidates a lot of the times in positions? Or I mean, like, I feel like a lot of the time people are just set in their ways where it's like, you know, maybe my family voted this way, I vote this way. And it seems like now you want to move the, the, the needle in, in either direction where it's like you actually should look at who's running regardless of what, how your family voted. So. I'm not saying necessarily like how can we switch it to a blue state so much, it's like how do you change the way people look at elections to make it so it's actually about what the candidate believes and thinks as opposed to just sort of blind party loyalty, which I think everyone can agree, that's probably not the best system. I think that's a great question and actually one that I'd love to hear from an audience of invested people in because I don't know that I have the, the answer. I mean, I have pieces of it, but um, that's one of the things that we're looking to do this cycle is um, you know, I, I, I said this in the World Herald that I felt like running the first time gave me an opportunity to introduce myself to the district, and now I have a chance to allow people to really get to know me and what I stand for. Um, but how do you do that uh, is, is still, I don't know, to be decided, I guess. Well, we, want, we can open up. Do you guys have any ideas? You want to throw anything out for us? <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, like, uh, I think the. Uh, the person who, like I told you earlier, the person who can uh, frame the, uh, the discussion about health care for everyone, affordable and so forth, who can do that is going to go a long ways towards winning any election in America. But I think the big thing that we have to do is convince, uh, convince the middle class and the lower class economic people in America of how uh, a health care system like that is going to be good for them. And so we've got to, you know, get into things like uh, 
how are you know how how is the money going to get how is it going to get paid for? Obviously, is a big question. I think one question that needs to be answered honestly somehow is that the rich are going to have to start paying their fair share. Which is one thing. I don't think we can. It's not good as much as we may want to to attack the rich, but just get the point across that they've got to start paying their fair share. The other part is for people who. Is, are there, is their health care going to get paid for in a way like we pay for Social Security and Medicare right now as a, what do you call it, a, uh, you know, payroll, a, a pay, payroll deduction sort of thing? I would have to imagine it'd be something like that. But the big part is, and I, I, I was a union steward for years, and the question that's always dogged me is how do we, how do we get convince people to vote for candidates? How do we quit getting people to vote for candidates who do nothing but slap them in the face at every opportunity? So that, that's the question. I don't know. It's got to. You want to speak to that at all, or just let it, uh, let it sit there? What do you think? <laughs> I, I grapple with that question every day since yeah. November sixth. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it's an interesting thing where we passed Medicaid expansion, although I don't know what we're doing with it. Um, but we've already passed it, but. It, People didn't, you know, overwhelmingly vote for the candidate that was out there talking about. Exactly, all right. It's the same situation that happened in Missouri with the uh, right to work. Missouri was a red state, you know, they always voted for a lot of Republicans and people who were anti labor and so forth. They went down there, they had a referendum, the whole state voted as to whether they wanted to be right to work, i.e., get rid of unions, and it was overwhelmingly defeated two to one, 66 to 33 percent. Yet, those people voted at the same time for candidates who did not back that sort of thing. So there's the disconnect. Mm -hmm. I think I, I would be curious to see if you do have any answer for why you think that happens or what you think could be done about that, that disconnect. Well, I, th I think that um, we, people are looking for authenticity and integrity in their elected officials. Maybe just on the Democratic side right now. <laughs> 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 I say, I, like, as I'm saying, I'm like, oh, integrity, authenticity, maybe. Um, and so, so I, you know, and I think some of this is new. Like some of this, where where you're hearing from Democrats who are issuing, you know, corporate money and talking about, um, you know, reducing the role that corporations play. When it comes to political influence, or meet, you know, actually create policies that are going to address, you know, racial injustice, or, um, you know, I think that some of this takes a little bit of time. I know, I know that to be true for Nebraska. Like there, you know, there are a number of times where I would approach people and say, you know, I want to try out this this new program around, you know, healthy, energy efficient housing, and they go like, oh, it's too soon for that. Like you gotta go a little bit slower. So I think that's another reason why um, why it's important for candidates like me, where you know the, the, the lose margin is so tiny, um, to try again. Because um, it, it's, let me tell you, it's easy to give up, but and it would be fun. But, um, <laughs> but I think the reason to do it again is to give people more of an opportunity to, to really get to know me and ask questions. And, and when we have these models of, you know, like, you know, like you were saying about Bacon's Town Hall, that it's just like, you know, these standardized questions and answers. You get an hour with your, you know, congressional rep, and, you know, he's not really telling you anything that you couldn't find out about on a, on a website. It's like, that's not a town hall. It's just a choreographed response to things. Um, we, we it, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing a paradigm shift. There's so many people that got elected in, in 2018 that, are speaking to these issues and really changing the way that we do American politics, um, and so I think that's really exciting to watch. But uh, you know, maybe we just need a little bit more time here. Why the House and not the Senate? For me. For you. Um, I, to me, uh, you know, Congress is is where I feel like I can really make an impact and. Um, and also that I think that there's learning to be achieved that way. Um, I, of course, when you're running for federal office, you think about different levels. Um, I, I don't know that I have the answer to how do we um, engage the whole of Nebraska in these issues where you, know, you just have such overwhelming support for Donald Trump. 
um, in some of the more rural areas of Nebraska. And I think that that is going to take some more time uh, to really figure out what the solution is and who the right candidate is for that. Um, I do not believe that um, many of the things that I want to work on and the policy positions that I have um, resonate <laughs> well enough with the whole of Nebraska right now, but I think they, they will over time. I think it's just going to take a little bit more time. But what we saw in you know, the fact that I won Douglas County and that what we can do here is start engaging more Democrats and start turning out more Democrats to vote. And I think that that's a really key piece. Um, I think that there are, there are wins to be gained from independents and from Republicans who are tired of what's happening. But I think what we really need to start doing is engaging Democrats like they've never been engaged before and going out to talk and talk to people who live in communities where candidates don't usually go. And, and start having conversations with people living in poverty and start having conversations with people who are so disenfranchised and feel like, what does it matter? Who represents me? Um, I mean, I feel like that right now, right? Like, I don't feel represented by my congressional representative at all. I mean, he's 97% with Donald Trump. That's not representing me in a purple district. Um, and, so, and there's no compromise. It's all speaking points, but then you just vote with with the Republican Party every single time. Um, I'm tired of it, and, and I think people are too. But it's, you know, we, we need a look. We have to have a comprehensive strategy, and we have to all work together. And um, I'm excited to be a part of that, and to really find ways to engage people um, and, and try things that we've never tried before. you engage with the word socialism in anything that you do, but I'm curious, because it seems like, certainly on the Republican side, there is no impulse whatsoever to try to explain what exactly socialism is in terms of policy in the United States, or what it has been since, I don't know, public school would probably be like an example, right? I mean, going all the way back to that, Thomas Jefferson. So, how do you, I mean, do you engage with that, especially as a social worker who probably knows a lot more of like social policies that might veer toward the philosophy of socialism that we've had, that everyone, you know, hasn't died from, the whole country seems to exist still. Uh, how much do you try to educate about that or engage with that or just sort of like, do you try to re-embrace that word at all? Do you just sort of like say, well, here's maybe a different way of looking at some of these policies or where are you with that whole debate? Well, right now where I am is that when we look at the current leadership of the United States of America and the way that he does things, I call that fascism. Yeah. 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 And that scares me a lot more than having public education. Um, and so I think that this is where, uh, as Democrats, we need to really start standing up for ourselves and showing that um, you know, having having a government-funded, privately delivered healthcare system is not socialism. It's actually just the right thing to do. I think this is a good point then to open up to general questions from the audience. Do you have any questions for Cara? Yes. So. As a future medical professional, I'm all for making medical costs lower for the patient, but I personally am facing down $450,000 in debt. Right. What should we do about student debt? Because I'm scared. Yeah, yeah as, as you should be. And it's funny because we assume that as a medical professional, you'll just be making that back in a year or two, and that's not the reality, right? Um, and so, so first and foremost, I think it's really important to talk about when you look at um, the way that the Medicare for all, the, the, the Medicare for all that I believe in um, is structured, medical professionals actually don't lose out much in salary. Um, but, but I think student debt is a huge issue in this country. And I saw that over and over again in my, my term at, on the Board of Metropolitan Community College that even students leaving Metro were drowning in debt or often that pay was a factor for them not being able to even attend Metro, which is the cheapest game in town. Um, and so that is something that we absolutely need to address. There are a lot of creative, interesting solutions from you know, free community college. I, I like to talk about debt-free because again, I do believe in a little bit of skin on the game, so free is not my favorite word. 
but you know, making sure that students aren't leaving college drowning in debt, um, having some. I, I think uh, Kirsten Gillibrand's idea of you know having uh, you know some sort of trade-off of like public service for education. I think that's an amazing idea. Uh, there are proponents of student debt cancellation that are putting out some really interesting research and facts about the boom to our economy that that would create. So I think that this is such a crisis. The amount of student debt, you know, over 1.5 trillion in the country. I mean, this is inhibiting our ability to be competitive in a global marketplace. It's making it so that people don't necessarily want to choose careers where they're going to actually be able to make a difference and help people. Um, because you'd probably be able to make a lot more money, even though we think doctors make so much, um, and maybe bartending even. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think this is something that needs to be addressed, and we need to get on it quickly, because it's it's an emergency. Any other questions from the audience? Feel free to just raise your hand, or shout something out, I don't care. What? Um, well, well, someone recognized so, since you already spoke once, so, good precedent here, yeah. So, uh, where are you on the recent versions of like the Green New Deal resolutions? Um, so I am one of those rare people that read most of the Green New Deal, <laughs> so <laughs> know what's in it. Um, to me, tying economic development and climate change is brilliant um, and makes so much sense for the way that we can um, actually move the needle knowing that we are in a state of emergency when it comes to climate change and that the impacts are about to be irreversible. Um, and as somebody who hopes to have a grandchild maybe 10, <laughs> 20 years from now, um, you know, I, I think we need to be thinking about these things. But one of the things that I have been working on at Omaha with the kids was um, you know, looking at how we create energy-efficient housing how that impacts climate change and also lowers utility bills while creating a huge workforce um, that would locally be producing healthy homes. Um, and so I think that that's, to me, is the most exciting part of the Green New Deal. I would like to see us be a little bit more laser focused when it comes to those ties between economic development and climate change. Um, I think there are pieces of it that you know are very high in the sky, although we should be working towards. But I absolutely support a Green New Deal. I think the uh, the it's, it, the unfortunate vilification that the Republicans have perpetrated against it, simply because they're afraid of its main sponsor, um, is is kind of sad and pathetic. And uh, but I think that it's exciting to hear Democrats talking about this. I mean, we are now the party of ideas, and I love that. I love that we're finally kind of getting back to our roots and really putting out bold policy positions that will impact things for, you know, in a positive way. Um, and I'm proud to be part of that. So I think the fact that the environment has become a partisan issue, like, right. that's, that's just, I, I don't even know what to make of it. I mean, I know, I understand why it happened, but it's just absurd. I mean, would you say that, I mean, going back to your reaction to the Superfund site, is the environment and the way that impacts both people and just wildlife, has that been a particular passion for you in terms of sort of directions you might want to go? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, so what we saw with the Superfund site is that you have this layering effect of environmental um, intoxication and poisoning of kids over and over and over again. So starting with lead poisoning, going down to industrial emissions, even just the way that communities are designed and where they're placed and the building of the 75 freeway and all these things that have had these long-term impacts on kids in these neighborhoods. And we have to actually be designing communities now thinking about these things because what has happened um, in the environmental justice movement has not gone far enough by any means. And so, and, it, and, and, and the people that are impacted are people living in poverty and people of color. And uh, the reality has been that our policymakers uh, just aren't putting them first. Let's, okay, another question. You had one, I cut you off. And then I asked another one before I went back to you, so I'm sorry about that. What was your question? No, okay. I'm just going to comment on like, what you said about, or what the bartender said about the $450,000, you know, gift and so forth. You want my mic since no, no, you no, don't no. have to talk about that. <laughs> 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 okay, sorry. But uh, like uh, you said, uh, and talk about skin of the game, you know. If I'm not mistaken, like in a lot of European countries, at least it used to be, if you qualified for med school, the government paid for the vast majority of it. But by the same token, the doctors did it, doctors and dentists and all those people.
they'd go out. I, I, I lived over there for a while in different countries, and they would go to like the schools in the little villages, and all the kids would get a dental exam, and they all get physicals and things like that, and that was all paid for by the government. And uh, you know, that's what socialism is. But when, and again, when they come back with this socialism thing, I think it's a good idea for you to say, you know, if you think good roads are this, and if you think this kind of thing is this, and if you like having this where your mom can stay in a health care facility or whatever when she's 90 years old, that's, you know, if that's socialism, then so call me that. But don't go around saying it real loud. Maybe. <laughs> Was it, did, uh, did you have a follow-up to that? I saw your hand go up for a second. Just Ideally, we start with, you know, overturning Citizens United. Um, 
the way that the Supreme Court is, is moving, that's, that's a big challenge, although I still think it's something we should be aiming for. But, um, but we, need, we need more candidates to stand up and, and say that they're not gonna do this. We need, that they're not gonna take you know, corporate track money. We need, uh, we need big systems change when it comes to American politics. We need to end the way uh, gerrymandering happens. Obviously, it's been a huge impact on our district. So, um, you know, I, and I think that there are places, you see around the country places that are moving in this direction, um, but it is going to take electing policymakers who actually want to change these things. Well, so that, I mean, it seems like the kind of the theme of the night. It's like, if you want to see change, you have to vote that change into office, right? So, is there any other question before we wrap things up here? Any other comments? You can just shout compliments at Car if you want to. Right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that. Okay. Actually, I mean, with all due respect to my friend Jane Raybould, 
outperformed the moderate Democratic woman that was running for Senate in the district. That speaks volumes to what people care about. Uh, we, you know, the, the, you know, what happened is Republicans turned out in droves. And, and I, there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, I think some of it was you know, coming out to vote against somebody like me, but I think most of it would have to do with timing and the Kavanaugh hearings and the caravan and things that play well in this district. It'll be interesting to see what's happening in our country right before the 2020 election, what gets people motivated and galvanized to vote. But I think that if we see, what we see is a strong top of the ticket, um, a great presidential candidate on the Democratic side, coupled with a lot more voters. I mean, we anticipate you know, maybe 60,000, if not 100,000 more voters um, that we can really turn this around. And the, the strategy will be a little bit different, but we will still focus on field, and we will still focus on talking to voters and talking about the things they care about and listening to them. First off, I want to thank all of you for coming out. I want to thank Beachside for hosting the event. And of course, thank you so much, Carr, for being here. Riverside Chats is hosted by me, Tom Noblock. I produce the show along with Ben Matukowitz through our company, Exarbon Creative. We do all kinds of things at Exarbon Creative, including films, web series, shorts, podcasts, live events, music videos, graphic design, and so much more. If you're interested in checking any of that out, please head over to exarbincreative.com. We are sponsored today by BFF Benson First Friday. Please check them out as well as Benson Theater. We're incredibly grateful to Benson Theater for hosting these events, which really allows people, as you heard in the episode, to directly talk to the guests. That's something that we really value. We really, really love that element of it because I'm, I'm up there just having a conversation. I'm not going to think the same thing that you are going to think. And... Oftentimes, the things that come up in these conversations are great, and we really appreciate those of you who make it down to the live events themselves. If you're interested in hearing any of our past conversations, knowing about who's coming up next, please follow Riverside Chats on whatever social, whatever your favorite piece of social media might be. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, whatever your famous, your, your favorite podcast app might be. Please leave us a review. Help us keep doing this show. Please show up. Please support both us, the local arts, get to know your local politicians you know you can make a change you can be a part of this you can do any of this get out there do it support the people who already are thank you so much for listening have a great week